We do thank our youth for serving here today. Uh, they have certain talents. Uh, they are growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, and they are learning the scriptures. Our church youth are becoming very well versed in the Bible. In fact, young people seem to have a better talent of memorizing scripture than perhaps some of us older people. But I want to uh, again take a survey and see how well versed we adults are in uh, the scriptures. I've asked these questions before, so perhaps the percentage will uh, rise and be a little higher today. I know our youth will be able to know and answer the question. How many of you can recite the first verse in the Bible, Genesis 1-1? Let me see your hands. Okay, see all the youth got their hands up. And uh, I can't see out there very good, but that's very good. It looks like about uh, 78% of you. That's very encouraging. Now, how many of you can recite the last verse of the Bible? It's Revelation 22, verse 21. See your hands. Okay, we have some of the youth with their hands, not too many adults. It looks like about 2% uh, know the last verse of the Bible. Well, let's take a look at Revelation, the 22nd chapter. Here is God's holy word that covers Genesis 1-1 all the way to Revelation 22, verse 21. It is the mind of God revealed to mankind. It's the revelation that God has given us. I gave a sermon some time ago on evolution or revelation. And at the end of all of the wonderful mysteries that God has revealed to us, what's the very last sentence in the Bible that God gives us? Revelation 22, 21 and verse 22. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. It's very powerful, very meaningful. It encapsulates and puts a benediction on and God's blessing upon the whole Bible. The previous verse, of course, you might know even a little better because you've read before, but it's also very important. Verse 20, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. And so John, who is writing this, responds to the red letter, of Jesus saying, Surely I am coming quickly, even so, come, Lord Jesus. As we heard in the opening prayer, when we contrast the evils and oppressions and wickedness of today's world, we want God's kingdom to come. We want the second coming. We want the Savior of the world to come and save the world from itself. But notice the last verse, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. All of us need the grace of God. All of us need the grace of Christ. And you parents, you want blessings on your children. And since today is Youth Day, we might just take a moment to take a look at the life of a young boy in the Bible. Turn to Luke, the second chapter, Luke 2. Do you have God's grace? Do your children... Do you children have God's grace? Here was Anna. There was Simon who blessed uh, Jesus. And God had revealed to him that Simon would actually hold the 
Christ child, the Messiah, in his own arms. What an incredible blessing God gave Simon. And then Anna bears witness to the Redeemer in verses 36 through 38. And then verse 38, And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Verse 39, So when they had performed all the things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. So how old was Jesus? Well, normally, of course, he would have been about eight days old when he had circumcised and brought up to the temple to be dedicated uh, later on as a little baby. And so how old was he? He was just a little child. But what does it say about him? In verse 40, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. So God's grace was upon this baby. We can thank of our, think of our children and be thankful that God's grace is, can be upon them. If we pray about that. And, of course, when we have the blessing of the little children, the ceremony that we have at the Feast of Tabernacles traditionally, uh, we know that we uh, our children have been blessed. And what a tremendous gift that is. When you know that you've had a child that's been blessed, it's uh, interesting to me from time to time. Someone will uh, come by, it's about uh, 20 or 30 years old, and uh, the parent will say, Mr. Ames, you blessed this, this uh, person when he was a baby, you know, or a little child. That was 20 or 30 years ago and still around, thankfully. But notice Luke 2 and verse 51. Now, this is when he was around 12 years old. Then he, Jesus, went down with them and with his parents and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. Remember, he had confounded the doctors of the law there in the temple. And uh, But notice that he was subject to them, which, of course, we had emphasized in the sermonette about following the uh, instructions of our parents. He was subject to them and kept all these things in his heart. And Jesus, verse 52, increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So we want all of our children to grow in the stature and in favor with God and men and to increase in wisdom. But we can pray for our children and know that they are very blessed to know God's way of life. And God wants you, you children, to grow in wisdom and in the grace of God and in the favor of God and men. So pray, both parents and children, pray for God's grace and favor in your life and in the life of your family. We saw that God has given awesome revelation to human beings. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Revelation 22, verse 21. Remember that God is giving that revelation to every human being on the face of the earth, although some are blinded. Uh, Some, of course, are applying some of the principles of the commandments. And to the degree that people keep God's commandments, God is going to bless them. But how important is God's grace to you? What does God's grace mean to you? The very last verse in the Bible, Jesus grew up with the grace of God upon him. Is grace, God's grace, a part of your Christian character? 
So many in the Protestant world have turned grace into a license to sin. I was just looking uh, yesterday or last evening on our Tomorrow's World website, and I put in the uh, search bar at the upper right part of the website, law or grace, question mark. And if you do that, you'll find Dr. Meredith's telecast, which was, uh, I think, December 30th, 2004, uh, an older telecast. Dr. Meredith looked uh, younger in that telecast, but it's available on Tomorrow's World Words, uh, website. But what did he say? This is the introduction to his telecast on law or grace, question mark. Quote, What is the greatest error in modern Christianity? Do you know? What one idea has deceived millions of people, my friends, and cut them off from God himself? I'm not exaggerating. Why is this such a universal deception? And why are people so easily deceived by this false teaching regarding law or grace? You need to know. Stay tuned. So you can get the rest of the telecast and uh, watch uh, that on our Tomorrow's World website. So in today's sermon, we'll briefly discuss law and grace. Does grace somehow do away with God's law? Or does God's grace help us to keep God's law? The title of the sermon today is God's Glorious Grace. By the end of the sermon today... I hope that you will have made God's grace and favor and love a part of your daily life and your thoughts and your way of life. And I hope that you'll know that God's grace will have more meaning to you than ever before. Just one month ago, we observed the Passover. It was Thursday night, April 2nd. Uh, We examined ourselves for, for, for the need for forgiveness. We meditated on the awesome grace and forgiveness that God had given us through Christ's sacrifice. Some time ago, I was shocked to have an old sin pop into my mind. And I thought, oh, where did that come from? Well, Satan tries to drag us back into the old world. But then I realized that God's act of sacrifice and the shedding of Christ's blood had paid for that old sin. And it's been buried, it was buried in baptism long ago. Let's turn to Psalm 103. No, you thank God that you've been forgiven and that those old sins have been erased. Psalm 103, verse 11. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. Now those who realize who and what God is. He's the creator of this vast universe. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Now those who are self-righteous can't appreciate that forgiveness. They can't appreciate God's mercy and the sacrifice of Christ. But if you have sinned and you have deeply repented, you've even shed tears, You know how wonderful God's grace and mercy and pardon is. So far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the eternal pities those who fear him. Well, Psalm 103, as you know, is one of my my favorite uh, hymns uh, and psalms. Blessed, verse 1, 
Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the eternal, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And we think of grace, think of God's benefits. These are some of the benefits of grace that he lists here. Who forgives all your iniquities, all of your iniquities. Of course, if you repent, he's not going to forgive you if you're still practicing that sin. You have to stop practicing sin. Who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, and we claim that promise. Who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. The Hebrew for loving kindness is hesed, which appears 246 times in the Old Testament. It has a great deal of depth and breadth and meaning. Who satisfies your mouth with good things, and this is one of my personal promises and that I claim from God, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Thank you very much, Mr. McNair, for mentioning that I'm a part of Youth Day. So we pray for God's youth, but here is God's blessings. Those are part of the extensions, the elements of God's favor and of his grace. But that's not the only thing in the New Testament when we think of grace because to turn back to Genesis, the sixth chapter, I know you're aware of the evil of the world. You just think how extensive, how broad the wickedness and evil was in the time of Noah. And he witnessed over a hundred years building that one ark as a testimony. In uh, Genesis, the sixth chapter, verse 5, Then the Eternal saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Eternal was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Eternal said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But would you have been one of those destroyed? Why was not Noah destroyed? But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So sometimes we have this a little problem with grace because we've been exposed to the false heresies or the heresies and the false doctrines of grace that the Protestant world has pawned off on the world in deception. But we need to understand we want God's true grace. And Noah would have been dead along with his family if he didn't have that mercy and that favor in God's sight. So we can be thankful for that. So thank God every day for his mercy and for his forgiveness. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son, and we shall be saved by his life, as it tells us in Romans 5 and verse 10. We were freely given unmerited pardon, unmerited forgiveness. Again, how deeply do you appreciate that sacrifice so that grace and forgiveness could be given to you? Let's turn to Ephesians, the second chapter. Ephesians, the second chapter, which is one of the fundamental scriptures that Protestantism used. And as I've tried to help all of our brethren before that might be tainted by 
false interpretations of Scripture. It's not a Protestant Scripture. It's God's Scripture. It's God's Word. So don't let the false interpretations influence your mind in a wrong way. Get your mind right into the Word of God and tremble before the Word of God. Let it sink in, the truth of His Word. So we have Ephesians 2. Um, I recently asked my wife, actually, we're down in Walterboro last Sabbath when I gave a sermon on grace. This is a little uh, modified from what that. I, I said, well, honey, why is grace so important? Her answer surprised me. She said, we're saved by grace. Oh? Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, verse 5, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. My wife actually was quoting scripture and I didn't know it at the moment. You are saved by grace. Of course, that's one element of salvation. It's not the only requirement because Luther took the word grace and said by grace and added the Latin word sola, by grace alone. He perverted the scriptures. It's not by grace alone. We'll read later on in chapter 2 and verse 8, but I just want to mention to you my wife's response on why grace was so important. We want to make sure, it says in verse 6, and raised us up together and made us sit all together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So again, he is kindness toward us in Christ Jesus with exceeding riches of his grace. Now he said we're saved by grace. Now I'm going to come back to Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 10 later on in the sermon, but just to mention uh, briefly here, um, let's turn back to Romans 3 uh, verse 23, that salvation, as we've always taught in the church, is past, present, and future in its elements. We have been saved from our past sins. That's made clear here in Romans 3 and verse 23. We have to be careful about are you saved? We appreciate um, Mr. Rod McNair's sermon uh, some weeks ago on are you saved? Romans, the third chapter, and verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace. You're not justified by doing good. All of the commandment keeping will not justify you. You're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed, or the King James Version, uh, sins that are past. So we have been saved from our past sins. Are we currently being saved? Well, you might hold your place there in uh, Romans because we'll come right back to that. But 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14. So it's past, 
We are saved from the sins that are past or previously committed. 2 Corinthians 2, uh, verse... Oh, no, chapter, okay. 2 Corinthians Corinthians 2, verse 14, one of my uh, newer memorization scriptures. Um, You thank God for the victories He gives you for overcoming... 2 Corinthians 2.14 Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. So we're having problems, overcoming some problem. He gives us triumph in Christ. And through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. Verse 15, for the Apostle Paul is talking about his preaching and the Gospel. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved. Present progressive tense. We are in the process of being saved as long as we are fulfilling the lessons of the days of unleavened bread to overcome, to replace um, human nature with God's divine nature, who are being saved and among those who are perishing. There are those who are actually perishing, and uh, there are those who are being saved. What about the future salvation? Romans 5.10, I already quoted it. Romans 5.10, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, future, we shall be saved by His life. So the Protestant false doctrine that once saved, always saved, is applied to once you receive Jesus, you're under grace, you're saved, It's a false doctrine. He that endures to the end shall be saved. That's Matthew 24, verse 13. And how are we saved? We shall be saved by Christ's life. Romans 5.10. These are wonderful promises God gives us. So we see that salvation has a past, present, and future aspect. But Protestantism and other aspects or other Segments of the professing Christianity have taken true grace and made it a false grace. Let's turn to Jude. Jude, uh, verse 3. Does it contend for the faith? Apparently this was more of an emergency letter that Jude was writing. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ." Well, that's why Dr. Meredith in the beginning of his telecast was so strong about saying how impactful, how deceptive that whole matter of law versus grace idea has influenced the world. But they have turned grace into lewdness. The uh, NASB uh, says, who turned the grace of our God into licentiousness, The King James Version, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. The NIV, who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. 
And isn't that what the world has been doing? The ministers in the, the, in the world say, you don't have to keep the commandments and who are just turning grace into license for immorality. Uh, the English Standard Version, who pervert the grace of God into sensuality. So we know that we are facing a world that is turning God's wonderful, true, living, glorious grace into lasciviousness or into a license for immorality. So God gives us this instruction. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians, the 6th chapter. 2 Corinthians 6. To whom does God give grace? Because he gives grace to those who obey him. We'll talk about that here briefly as well. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 1 is an instruction for all of us. We're very thankful to have God's favor, to have his mercy, to have his forgiveness, to have his patience with us. We then, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 1, as workers together with him, We are co-workers with Christ, co-workers with one another. Also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. How can you receive the grace of God in vain? By going out and turning it into license to sin, to make sure that you're obedient, that you're responsiveness, responsive. In the booklet, Who and What is the Antichrist?, Dr. Meredith writes this about true grace. Page 5, Who and What is the Antichrist? Quote, Let us understand that no one can ever earn salvation. It is God's gift. The true grace of God leads to the gift of salvation. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, Romans 6, verse 23. Those willing to obey God and who are under true grace will be God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Ephesians 2, verse 10. He says, we are not to receive the grace of God in vain. We just read in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 1. And while the apostle Peter exhorted Christians to rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 1, verse 13 He continues with the expectation that we do so as obedient children. Verse 14. Well, that's 1 Peter 1 and verse 14. But when men cleverly misuse grace, Dr. Meredith writes, teaching cheap grace without real repentance from sin is the very essence of the doctrine of Antichrist. This false concept has allowed millions of professing Christians to go through life regularly and habitually disobeying the Ten Commandments, yet still assuming that they are good Christians. So you really see how the doctrine of false grace is really a doctrine of the Antichrist. It teaches that they don't need to keep the commandments. Cheap grace is grace that condones sin, a grace which never experienced real repentance from sin. Some of you are familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was in the Holocaust in the concentration camp, 
and wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. He said, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. And how often do you hear preachers in the world preaching except Christ, but they forget or they neglect the R word. Dr. Meredith wrote an article in Tomorrow's World magazine, the missing R word. They don't tell you to repent. But that's the first word that Jesus said, repent and believe in the gospel. Dietrich Bonhoeffer goes on, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. You know, I was in a uh, chiropractic office uh, sometime before, uh, oh, a couple months ago, and there was a, an Easter poster on the wall of the office. And uh, it said something to the effect, if I can find it here, oh, yes. Christ's sacrifice has freed us from slavery to the law. Something wrong with that? Everything's wrong with that. It is release us from slavery to the law. You turn to Romans, the sixth chapter, and see what God really released us, what slavery he released us from. Romans, the sixth chapter. And here, interestingly enough, it's stated twice. Romans 6, the Apostle Paul is, of course, talking about sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law but under grace. That is... um, We'll come back to that if we have time. Romans 6, verse 14. That's the scripture that Protestants use to say, look, the law is done away. You're not under the law. You're under grace. But what does it say in verse 15? What then? Shall we transgress the law, that is sin, because we are not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. And so it's not a contradiction at all. What we're saying is here is that you have been under the penalty of the law for your sinfulness and your slavery to sin. Because as he says here in Romans 6 and verse 18, having been set free from sin. Not set free from the law, but set free from sin. You have become slaves of righteousness. Now if some of you are still struggling because you have guilt feelings, you're not that free. And every once in a while, if I have a guilt feeling, I have to face that guilt feeling and say, why am I feeling so guilty? Why am I feeling this way? Oh, I know. I watch too much television and neglected prayer. You repent of it, and then God forgives you, and you are remaining under grace. But you must, again, identify those guilt feelings God gives you, that conscience, to help you identify those transgressions. And even I was just reading uh, recently in Leviticus uh, about some of the burnt offerings and the animal offerings. It says even if you sin, uh, unaware that you've committed a sin, when you come to understand that you've sinned, then you need to take this bullock or this goat or the, or the uh, doves and make a sacrifice. And you have to shed blood with these uh, animal sacrifices. So there are times when we are unaware of our sin, but when it comes to our conscience, uh, consciousness, we have to repent of it. But we are not slaves to sin. We are set free from sin, verse 18. 
And then uh, verse 22, But now having been set free from, not the law, but from sin, which is the transgression of the law, and having been made slaves of God, you have your fruit in holiness, and the end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, as Dr. Meredith wrote in his Antichrist uh, booklet, let us understand that no one can ever earn salvation. It is God's gift. The true grace of God leads to the gift of salvation. Those willing to obey God and who are under the true grace of God will be God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Ephesians 2, verse 10. Let's turn to James, the second chapter. James 2. We're told not to let receive the grace of God in vain, that we are to remain teachable. So we have to identify cheap grace and reject it. But at all times, we rejoice in God's true grace if we are obedient children. James, the second chapter. Here we find the, uh, an example of the fallacy of the either or argument. They will say, are you under the law or are you under grace? And so you're set up to conclude that God's law is no longer in effect. So how do you answer the question? Well, James, the second chapter, has another either or uh, challenge. James 2, verse 17. Thus also faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. But some will say, you have faith, and I have works. And so James says, all right, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you know, want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? So there were the faith Christians and then the works Christians. And James is saying it's not either or, it's both and. I may have shared that, uh, shared that with you before, but James Barclay in his commentary on James writes this, It is not a case of either faith or works. It is necessarily a case of both faith and works. In the well-proportioned life, there must be both thought and action. In the well-proportioned life, there must be prayer and effort. And so it's not law or grace, it's law and grace, and we'll discuss that a little more as time goes on. The either-all fallacy was presented our church here a few years ago with a criticism by outsiders that we were not preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, that we would mention another gospel. And so uh, Dr. Douglas Renale gave a sermon, uh, sermon number 421, the biblical gospel. And Dr. Meredith gave a sermon number 412, Jesus Christ and the true gospel. But because if you mention anything other than the gospel of the kingdom of God and you're preaching Christ, oh, that's not the kingdom of God. Oh, it's not. Who is the king of that kingdom? And what was the gospel that, that the Apostle Paul preached? Do you just take one 
phrase in the Bible, Jesus did say, came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, Mark 1, verses 14 and 15, saying, repent and believe in the gospel. But there are many other listings. I'll just just turn to one. Uh, There are many uh, listings, the gospel of. Well, let's take a look at one, uh, Acts 20. And here, the first century church had a high regard, sensitivity, consciousness, awareness of God's glorious grace. Acts 20, and uh, the Apostle Paul is at uh, Ephesus saying, uh, you know, the very emotional uh, goodbyes to the elders, and he's telling their verse 24 about the uh, challenges that would meet him, the chains in verse 23, verse 24 of Acts 20. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Uh-oh, we can't mention that because Mr. Armstrong said there's the gospel of the kingdom of God. It's not either or. And when you fall into that fallacy, into that trap of a false argument, you're in danger and you are denying the truth. You add up all of the truths together. It's not either and, but it's both, and either or, but it's both and. It's the gospel of grace. What is the gospel of the kingdom of God? How can you be in the kingdom of God? Unless you repent and are baptized and receive God's grace, receive God's Holy Spirit, and grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ over a period of time. There is the gospel of Jesus Christ, Mark 1.1. 1, 1. The gospel of God, Romans 1.1. 1, 1. The gospel of His Son, Romans 1.9. The gospel of peace, Romans 10, verse 15. Uh, the gospel of the glory of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Ephesians 1.13, the gospel of your salvation. So it's not an either or. Don't be deceived by those who say that, you know, the only gospel there is is the gospel of the kingdom of God. That is the main message. That is the message we're preaching. That's the number one mission in the sevenfold mission of the living church of God, to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God and the true name of Jesus Christ. And that's in Acts, the 8th chapter, where Philip was teaching the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. For those accusers to say, oh, Mr. Armstrong wouldn't preach that, they're they're so far off base. Uh, Mr. Armstrong was one, when we read Revelation Revelation 3, verse 8, that characteristic of the Philadelphians, We feel Mr. Armstrong had that characteristic. We want that characteristic. I gave that in a message on the Philadelphian mission some time ago. What does it say, Revelation 3.8? For you have a little strength, have kept my word. Not just part of God's word, but all of God's word. And have not denied my name. The Apostle Paul told Timothy, preach the word. That's what Mr. Armstrong did. And he did not divorce Christ out of the message of the kingdom of God. Here's a letter that Mr. Armstrong wrote, December 12, 1958. Dr. Meredith uh, copied that or included that letter 
in his uh, January-February 2012 Living Church News uh, personal. Which Armstrong do you follow? Here's what Mr. Armstrong wrote. Did he say, oh, no, we, we're just preaching the kingdom of God. We don't preach Christ. Here's what he wrote in his letter, December 12, 1958. We do not seem to stress sufficiently Christ as Savior. Faith in Him. And then His faith in us, living faith, which is inseparable from obedience. We must stress the whole truth more. Repentance, surrender, Christ as Savior, being changed by God's Spirit as God's gifts, by grace, following our conforming to His conditions of repentance and faith in Christ. The change from carnality to spiritual mindedness being begotten and then the overcoming and enduring and growing life of obedience and living faith with Christ, living his life in us. He concludes that letter. Let us not leave Christ and grace out of our speech and letters. Mr. Armstrong, as all of us, strive to live by every word of God. He dedicated his life to do that so that we would not deny his name and have kept my word, as Jesus wrote in Revelation 3 and verse 8. So here the Apostle James had this either-or conflict, and the Law or grace is one of those either-or fallacies. Let's turn back. We just read that, but Romans 6 and verse 14. I think I explained enough of it to show here that the reason many are deceived because they just focus on the one sentence and don't take a view of the context uh, the, con- the basic conflict here is in uh, Romans 6.14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. The context again here is sin. Verse 12, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it to the lusts. The, obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So you are not under the law that has an external claim on your body, that claim on you. The old covenant was external to Israel. The new covenant, God writes his laws on our hearts and on our minds, and he gives us the internal power to be conformed to not only the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law, the whole way of life that God's way of life is a way of loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbors as ourselves. There's a Tomorrow's World uh, magazine article, uh, Tomorrow's World, January, February 2003, uh, Must We Obey God to Be Saved? Let's turn back to uh, Acts. As I said before, verse 15 of Romans 6, what, what then? Shall we sin, transgress the law, because we are not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. Should we 
obey God. You know, back in our former association, and I remember some of the sensitivities when that transition was taking place, that, oh, to obey God gave the sense of, oh, you're getting salvation by works. Because somehow the strange reasoning that if you're obeying God, you have to do something in order to be saved, and therefore obeying God uh, was not a part of their theology. Acts 5, verse 29. Remember, they were on trial before the Sanhedrin. And Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. So God has never done away with obedience. And as long as we are obeying God, we can be under the grace of God. Notice verse 32. And we are his witness to these things, so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So God has given us that obedience, but we have to retain a repentant attitude always. We need to make sure that we are dedicated to be teachable, to make sure that we can take correction. As it says in Jeremiah 10, I believe it is, Correct me, O Lord, but not in your anger, but in judgment, lest I be brought to nothing. And I... I know I hesitate to ask God for correction, but when I do, I ask him, please be merciful and let me know what I need to change. But we need to be willing to change and to learn every lesson that we need to learn. Turn to Romans, the 8th chapter. So we have to be obedient. We need to have the faith of Christ. But as long as we're in a repentant attitude, we can stay within God's grace and favor and know that we are going to be forgiven. Why? Because, as I pointed out, that whenever a sin is brought to our attention, we immediately repent of that sin, acknowledge the sin, we're accountable for our actions, we ask God's forgiveness, and He forgives us because He promises to. 1 John 1, verse 9. You know, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Romans 8, chapter... There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. So do you really appreciate God's glorious grace, that you are free from slavery to sin? You are free from sin. You are free from the law of sin and death because you are walking in the Spirit, not in the flesh. Now notice, I remember when uh, the uh, false doctrine was being promulgated in our former, former association and said, oh, well, all you need to do is read Romans and Galatians and see uh, the new covenant does away with the commandments and the law and so forth. Well, I read Romans, and I don't find that. I find that the Apostle Paul, on the contrary, supported the law of God. If you look just up the page here in uh, verse uh, chapter 7, verse 16, I do not, uh, if I then do what I will not, not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So he says the law is good. And he's talking about the struggle with sin in his life. But he says then in verse 22, For I delight in the law of God 
according to the inward man. Verse 12, he says, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. So God's word makes it very plain that God's law is still in effect and that the new covenant writes with God's cooperation, with our cooperation of God, writes that law on our hearts and minds, becomes our character, the very nature and character of Christ who exemplified that love towards God and love towards neighbor. No, I'd like to challenge you to write a short paper on what does grace mean to me? What does grace mean to me personally? It means that I've been reconciled to God by the death of his son. And that when I came up out of the water of baptism, I was clean and pure of all past sins, and I could walk in newness of life. As we just read, grace to me means that I am free from the law of sin and death. It also means that I have freedom from guilt. Now, that doesn't mean I'm guilty from time to time, but I'm not guilty all the time. When I sin, make a mistake, even sometimes even don't know that I've sinned until someone brings it to my attention, you know, I'm free from continuous guilt. And even when it's brought to my attention, I can confess my sin and be free from that guilt because he promises to forgive me because I'm repentant. So grace means to me that I can be free from guilt and I have freedom to recapture the true values of life. You might turn there to John 10, verse 10. I know you know that verse, but when you think of living grace, true grace, God's glorious grace, this is so fundamental to the dynamics of living grace. John 10 and verse 10. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. You know, God's glorious grace engages us in an abundant life. We can climb mountains. We can express individual creativity and art and literature and industry, business and science. What a wonderful freedom it is to enjoy God's way of life. Uh, Some of you know I enjoy writing poetry uh, from time to time. I was uh, in an advanced English class in my senior year in high school in Meriden, Connecticut, and I was up on a small mountain overlooking the city. There was a golf course below, but off in the distance were these factories, and we don't have the same extent now, but with smokestacks, and smoke was coming out, but the smoke kind of lingered at the cloud level, and there were sun rays coming down through the clouds. So I wrote this poem, if I can remember it. It's called Here on the Mountain. Here on the mountain my eyes scan the city, to the south, to the west, with factories so busy. The smoke rises high to the clouds where it lingers, creating soft sun rays, as if God's own fingers were reaching for people to hear him say, Come to the mountain and relax for a day. For high on this mountain, as if on his hand, God will enter your heart as you look on his land. I wrote that at age 17. 
and now it's 60 years later. And I hope that you young people can do the same to enjoy the grace and the freedom that you have to recapture true values, to, uh, as many of you have been, on the adventure hikes. Um, my wife and I have climbed uh, Mount Sinai. Dr. Meredith has climbed Mount Sinai. I think probably some of the others. Anyone else in here climbed Mount Sinai? Good. Oh, Kathy Williams. Can't see anyone else. Uh, but anyway, uh, Dr. Meredith also climbed uh, Mount Whitney in uh, California. Mr. Wayne Pyle climbed many different mountains. God has given us an abundant life, the freedom, the grace to go out and recapture true values, to enjoy life, and know that whatever we do in word or deed, we're doing all in the name of Christ. We're growing in the mind and the nature of Christ. We're looking forward to tomorrow's world where we'll be teaching people how to have the abundant life, how to apply true values in science and literature and art. And some of you are very uh, artistic, and we appreciate the music, of course, in our youth even here today. So be, use the freedom that God has given you to enjoy life. God's grace also means to me that I have the freedom to create, to work, to share, to fulfill the sevenfold mission that God has given the church. God's grace means to me that I have the favor of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome and grow and mature and develop. God's grace means that I can be conformed to the image of Christ. You know Romans 8:29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God's grace means to me that I can radiate the fruits of God's Holy Spirit. It means that I can share God's grace, his character, his love, his mercy, his compassion, his benefits and blessings with others. Of course, we need to make sure that we have that obedient and repentant attitude always. I turn to Psalm 130, show the depth of that grace that God gives us. Psalm 130. I remember this being sung in special music, the Feast of Tabernacles in Big Sandy. I think that was 1960. Three, just very heartfelt and emotion. Psalm 130, verse 1. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Eternal. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Eternal, should mark iniquities, who should stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. You know, we sometimes mark the iniquities of our family members and have a little black book on all their sins. Well, God doesn't mark iniquities as long as we're teachable, as long as we're repentant. So we appreciate our youth who are teachable. And, of course, they read the book of Proverbs where there is much wisdom and knowledge and understanding for all of us. But as long as we are under grace, as long as we humbly seek God's will, 
we serve God with the mind, as the Apostle Paul said, with the mind I myself serve the law of God. And he does that because we're under the new covenant. Just to share with you a couple definitions of grace. The Dictionary of Paul in his letters, page 372, quote, in Pauline usage, the word charis, which is the Greek word charis in the New Testament, carries the basic sense of favor. So when I think of God's grace, I think of God's favor. He favors me. He favors you. And he blesses you. The basic sense of favor. The uh, Holman Bible Dictionary. Uh, Grace is undeserved acceptance and love received from another, especially the characteristic attitude of God in providing salvation for sinners. From the human perspective, the divine grace is a power which undergirds the present life. Our calling, our witness, our works are all based on the power of God's grace in our lives. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 11 through 12. I was looking up uh, in Vine's expository dictionary of biblical words, uh, charis or grace, and uh, page 276, charis has various uses. A, objective, the objective a case rather than a subjective case, that which bestows or occasions pleasure or delight or causes favorable regard. So perhaps I hope that this sermon is helping you to expand your vision and appreciation of the benefits of God and how God gives us, as we read in Psalm 103, that he forgives all our trespasses. He heals all our diseases. So God has blessed us in that and renews even our youth. In the New King James Version, the word grace appears in the New Testament 148 times in 137 verses. In the New King James Version, the word gracious occurs 32 times in 31 verses. So let's think about great being gracious for a moment. Not only grace, but being gracious. Is God gracious? Yes, it says that in Exodus 34, verse 6. The eternal, the, the eternal God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. So those who extend grace will also be gracious. Turn to uh, Luke, the fourth chapter. Luke 4. Here, Jesus was uh, in Nazareth. Luke 4, and starting with verse 20. He just read from Isaiah. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? 
Oh, Jesus had gracious words. What about us? Are we gracious in our conduct and in our words? Let's turn to Colossians, the fourth chapter. Colossians 4. We've had uh, several sermons on the power of words. And let the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer, the meditations of my heart. It's uh, Psalm 19. Turn to uh, Colossians, the fourth chapter. I can find it in my Bible. Colossians 4 and verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each other. So again, you're using thoughtfulness, consideration, discretion, kindness, compassion, Understanding. So we think about the time when we read in Luke 2, verse 40, the child became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. But our speech also needs to be with grace. Let's turn to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, just uh, back a few pages. Philippians 4, Ephesians 4, sorry, and verse 29. Ephesians 4, I'm sorry, and verse 29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed from the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. We want to impart grace to the hearers. So grace was very important to the apostolic church, the first century church. And uh, we need to make sure that we are living by grace and understanding that that grace is through the very fact of Christ living his life in us and we in him. In the uh, next uh, 40 minutes of the sermon, the next uh, uh, remaining time, I want to share with you some of the positive elements of grace. Because you only think of it kind of as a conflict, uh, but nonetheless at the same time uh, we realize that we wouldn't be here if it weren't for God's patience with us, His long-suffering, His mercy, and His glorious grace. 2 Corinthians 12. 2 Corinthians 12th chapter. Here's one of the, another. We've talked about some of the positive aspects of grace, but let's take a look at this one. This one shows that God's grace allows us to endure trials. God's grace allows us to endure trials. 2 Corinthians 12. And verse 7, remember the thorn in the flesh that the Apostle Paul spoke about. Verse 7, 2 Corinthians 12, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. 
What was his answer? Verse 9, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And the last part of verse 10, For when I am weak, then I am strong. Turn back a couple pages to 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 14. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 14. And here we find another positive aspect of grace, that God's grace abides in us. Verse 14, breaking in the middle of a thought, 2 Corinthians 9. And by their prayer for you, that is for the Corinthian church, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So we thank God that you have God's grace in you. You also want to pray for grace and favor. Remember we sound that in Genesis 6 and verse 5, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And Proverbs 16, 7 says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Some of you may know the old uh, story of Mr. Herbert Armstrong in the earlier years when he was doing radio on the World World Tomorrow radio program. And he would take uh, discs of the radio program to a radio station trying to, again, get the radio program on more radio stations in the northwest United States. And he would go to a radio station, try to see the program manager or the station manager and have them play the disc. And Mr. Armstrong would say, look, you know, you're going to get a greater audience if you um, have me on your, your program, on your radio station. But he traditionally would always pray for favor before going to the radio station. I was just reading his autobiography here in Chapter 45, Volume 2, he forgot to do that one time, and it didn't, didn't go well for him. And then when he realized what had happened, he prayed and asked God uh, to give him favor. He says, then I asked him now to change this man's attitude to one of favor toward me. So I was saying that grace and favor have a, uh, a synonymous feeling to them to a certain degree. And toward the program, I believe and expected to receive it. And so when they played it, he said, um, when the half-hour program was ended, as they listened to Mr. Armstrong's uh, recording, the only word spoken was, we can clear time 8 to 8.30 Sunday morning for you. By now, I was not timid. I was confident. I found so many times, and I hope that you too, and I know some of our uh, young adults do when they're going in for a professional interview, looking for a new job, Pray for grace and favor in sight of the business person with whom you're interacting. That's what Mr. Armstrong did quite often. Not only did he have that, of course, in the earlier years, but later on when he was going before presidents and kings, he wrote this in chapter 80 of his uh, autobiography. I have come to see that the commission to take the gospel of the kingdom of God to all the world for a witness to all nations could only be accomplished through the very heads of government. I explain this time and again in letters, editorials, articles. I am now actively holding campaigns in world capitals, speaking before professional groups, even with heads of state worldwide. I am explaining why there is no peace 
What is the way of peace? Why humanity cannot solve its problems? Why Christ's coming world government is the world's only hope? And what is our very purpose for being? And I am being given grace and favor in their eyes. So pray for grace and favor. How are we going to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ? You want to go to Second Peter, of course, chapter 3, verse 18, at the end of Peter's two epistles. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. We've seen the ways that we do grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. We've had dozens of sermons on how to do that. One of the most basic and fundamental ways is to have our heart in God's work. And I know that uh, most of you, if not all of you, have received the uh, semi-annual letter, which was sent out to almost 500,000 subscribers around the world, offering uh, the DVD, The Power of Religion, by Dr. Meredith. So be praying for that semi-annual letter. You will grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ as you have your hearts in the work. And as you respond to the co-worker letters, realizing, yes, this is Jesus Christ giving me encouragement, encouraging me to participate more fully, emotionally and spiritually in his work. So we want to make sure that we're doing that. Years ago, I was teaching at Ambassador College the fundamentals of theology of the Worldwide Church of God. One of the students in my class was my wife. She wrote an assigned essay titled Salvation Through Grace. And I thought I would share the last paragraph of that with you. When we experience weakness in the flesh that we cannot overcome, we should remember that Christ told the apostles, Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12:9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Throughout our lives, we must not forget that Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, quote, have loved us and have given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 16. We must strive to be sure we receive not the grace of God in vain. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 1. And to the end, we must remember and accept the admonishment given in 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. That was April 13, 1980, and she got an A in my class. So, brethren, we will have struggles and trials. We have challenges to overcome, to overcome our human nature, but we know, and we know that we know, we are under God's favor and love. The world follows a false grace, a grace that says the Ten Commandments are done away, a cheap grace that doesn't require repentance. But God's true grace gives us power to overcome. And some critics will say that we shouldn't be preaching about Christ and grace. That's not a part of the gospel. And my question to them is, are you reading the Bible? Are you striving to live by every word of God? Are you trembling before the Word of God, Isaiah 66 and verse 2? The critics will be judged for their own words. But we strive to live by every word of God. We strive to fulfill the great commission of 
preaching the good news of the kingdom of God and the way into that kingdom. As Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we preach the king of the kingdom as well. Though all of us must grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, we extend God's grace to others. God's grace helps us to keep God's laws. It tells us in 1 John 5, verse 3, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous or burdensome. So thank God for the freedom that he gives us through his grace to live abundantly. Thank God that we can come boldly before the throne of grace, Hebrews 4, verse 16. So as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, thank him for his glorious grace. And may our children become strong in the spirit, filled with wisdom, and may the grace of God be upon our children. Well, let's finish the work that God has given us to accomplish. Be gracious, radiate love, joy, and peace, and the very nature of Christ himself. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.